Good evening, Sunday evening faithful, welcome. Um, We're in Daniel chapter 9, let me pray for us, then I'll read it and then we'll have a look at it together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity um, to gather, uh, to listen, to encourage, to praise, and to be equipped for the week ahead. We pray as your word is open, we pray that you would speak to us. Thank you that you know each of us, you know what's going on um, in our lives, you know what's going on behind the smiles. And so pray as we, as we look at Daniel chapter 9 together, we pray that you would speak to us in the midst of whatever is happening in our lives. Um, would you be at work, we pray. Would you soften our hearts. And would you speak. In Jesus' name. Amen. I think you all know we are in um, Daniel, we've reached chapter 9, we're on page 895 if you have one of the church uh, Burgundy Bibles. I'm going to read to us from chapter 9 and verse 1. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jerusalem the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So, I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you, We and our kings, our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the law he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it's written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favour of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. 
Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away from your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you. For you are highly esteemed, therefore consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler will come, who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering and at the the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Do flip back to the start of the chapter. Um, If you've been around with us for previous weeks, you will recognise a change in chapter 9 from the previous, at least the previous few chapters. Here we've not got visions, but here we have a prayer. Here we have Daniel writing a prayer for us. I take it for our instruction, a sense in which he is modelling for us how to pray and how to confess. And I say a sense in which, because I think, hopefully I'll show you at the end, while it is in one sense a model, in other ways it is not. We will get there when we get there. Uh, first thing though, just to notice, uh, have a look at one and two. He is appealing from God's word as he prays. So huge events are happening in the life of the nation. Look chapter and verse one. Overnight we've read there's been a coup d'etat has taken place and Belshazzar is in, the king of the Babylonians is slain, Darius the Mede comes to power. In just one night, everything changes. And yet in the heart of all that, Daniel seems to be reading the scriptures. Which you kind of think, sure, that's what you do. But but isn't it striking just to note that he is one who has been privileged to receive extraordinary dreams and visions. He is one who's been given enormous insights into um, the future, in miraculous ways, he's been let in on what God is going to do. And I find it striking that, yeah, he's still attentive to the scriptures. 
You just get this glimpse of this faithful guy reading his Bible. And God speaks to him. And he speaks to him from Jeremiah the prophet, the scroll that he presumably has got. And he learns that the desolation of Jerusalem, do you see, would, be, would last only 70 years. Um, verse 2. That's probably Jeremiah 25, 11 to 12, which says this, the whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Or it may be Jeremiah 29, 10 to 11, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfil my good promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. A kind of greetings card verse. Um, Jeremiah 29, 10 to 11 is the other one. But you can imagine Daniel reading the scroll. He's got Jeremiah in front of him and he's there doing his maths at the same time and you're thinking, well, it's been 60 years. The Babylonians have already just been destroyed. The Persians are here. So that doesn't leave long. There's not long to go until it's 70 years. And yet, get what is striking then is that, what does Daniel do at that point? He knows it's going to last 70 years. And so he is stirred to pray. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't just sit back, think, right, God's got it in hand. We're all good. Feet up. Let's just watch. Slippers on, feet up. No, he, because of what he knows of what God is like, because of what he knows even that will come to pass, he knows what to pray for. He knows how to pray in line with God's will. It's an interesting tension, isn't it? That the idea that God is sovereign, he is in charge. He overrules in such a way that he is free, he is powerful, he is not answerable to his people. But then the way in which he reveals himself in his sovereign purposes changes perhaps the way his people are to act. He expects his people to act accordingly. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility, intertwined thoroughly. And what does he pray for? Verse 3 to 14, the meat of the prayer. He prays for God's mercy. And it's striking because here he is acting like something of a mediator. Which is a curious thing because he's not a king. And he's not a priest, not really. And he's in exile. And yet he is representing his people before his God. We said he's a prophet of sorts, but he's not a priest or a king, so it's striking that he is representing them. We see he is highly esteemed later on. And as I say, in many ways, it's a deliberate model, I think, for us, as we think about a prayer of confession, where we very quickly, in our prayers, leap onto the assurance of forgiveness, which in many ways is, many ways is right. I'm struck that Daniel lingers in an extraordinarily comprehensive prayer of repentance, you see that in a few ways. You see it first in the verbs used. Um, so just kind of fly over it with me. You get verbs, verse 4 of confession. At verse 5, he talks about having sinned and done wrong and been wicked and rebelled and turned away. Verse 6, they have not listened. Verse 7, they have been unfaithful. At verse 8, they are covered with shame. Verse 11, there is transgression spoken of, and then most of those things are repeated a number of times. He is extraordinarily thorough 
in his prayer of repentance for both himself and the people whom he is representing. It's not particularly PC. In our day, or even in their day, we're not particular fans of being honest and open about our sin, of revealing our shame. We, we like to hide from the Lord, a la Adam and Eve, when we get stuff wrong. We're not keen on being exposed. Whereas Daniel here doesn't hide, he puts his hand up and says, this is me, this is us. Lord, here is what we are like. So he's comprehensive in terms of just pouring himself out, the verbs particularly that he uses, but also the the people whom he is representing. I'm struck by that too. So there is no one excluded. Look at verse 7. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, and all the countries where you scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. Or verse 8. And we and our kings and our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame. Lord, we have sinned against you. Or verse 11, next page. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. So wherever they are in terms of geography, all the people still in the land and those who have been exiled, wherever they are in terms of social strata, kings, princes, ancestors, everybody, and then he summarises 11, all Israel, they have turned their backs on him and they have forgotten him. Everyone has done it. And then there's an interesting thing in terms of time scale as well. Um, I tried to bring it out slightly as I was reading it, but I don't know if you spotted it. Now look at verse 13. Um, this is a striking verse. Just as it's written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we've not sought the favour of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. See that? Daniel says, we know we are culpable. We understand why we are here. We have transgressed against your law. You said you would remove us from your land um, if we did this. We did this, and so you have removed us from our land. Um, And you said, turn back to me, but we haven't. We've done nothing about it. We have not sought your favour. It's the proverbial hard-hearted child who will spend hours on naughty step because they refuse to say sorry. They refuse to return. They refuse to come back. And so they keep being punished because they've not returned to the Lord. Disaster came on them like a megaphone and they didn't listen. They did nothing about it. So they have no excuses. And Daniel is not making excuses. He knows why they have been exiled. He is here to mediate and to repent comprehensively. He knows what God is like. You get that again and again and again, right through too. You get the idea of God being righteous. Verse 7, Lord, you are righteous, we are covered with shame. Verse 14, the Lord is righteous in everything he does, yet we haven't obeyed him. Daniel here is not making excuses. Daniel here is not blaming his genes or his upbringing or his circumstances or his family or his tendencies or any of that. He said, Lord, here's what we've done. Here's what you are like. Here's what we are like. We get it. Now we're returning to you. And at about verse 14, actually the tone changes. The tone of the prayer changes from verse 15 through to 19. He prays then for God's glory. Um, let me 
Uh, let me read those again. I think they are important as we try and get to grips with the motive behind Daniel praying. What is going on foundationally and fundamentally. And then what that means for us. See verse 15. Now, now Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we've done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn from your anger and your wrath, from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill, our sins and the, and the iniquities and of your, our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, O oh God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen, forgive, and act, hear and act for your sake, my God. Do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. You've probably spotted it. But do you see why he calls on the Lord? What is the foundational element of, of the prayer? To forgive, to relent, to restore? It is because it is his people, his city, his sanctuary, his name. He's appealing to the Lord's reputation, the Lord's honour as he prays. In everything that's happened, the people of God may have been exiled and they may have suffered they may be away from home. But in one sense, in all of it, it is God's name that has been dragged through the mud. It is God who has become an object of scorn to the nations as they look in and mock. It is God who has become a laughing stock. He's sneered at. And so greater than God's concern for the welfare of his people is Daniel's concern for the reputation of the Lord. And at about that point, I'm going to pull into a lay-by. Um, because I think for many in our culture, that is a difficult thing to understand. It can be a huge barrier to, to people wanting to believe in the God of the Bible, because they say, well, is he needy, egotistical, arrogant, weak, and needs people to worship him that he might feel good about himself? Maybe you've got friends who think that kind of stuff. Maybe you've got those questions inside you as you sing some the songs that we sing or read verses in the Bible. So as if he's got this massive ego and we just need to stroke him with a promise of fame and reputation going to the ends of the earth. You know, if God was on Twitter, then we would know the kind of things he might say to gain our approval and to get the retweets and the likes. Is that what he's like? Is he needy, immature, childish? Is he arrogant and egotistical? And so Daniel prays in light of his name and his glory, and God's like, ah, great, yeah, okay, I'll do it for me. Why does Daniel pray this? I think it's a really good question. Why, I would say, or we pray in the light of God's glory? I think the answer that the Bible would give is that our our God has made the world in such a way that as a loving, generous, kind creator, he sits at the very heart of it. He sits at the, real, the core of his creation. He's not stingy, he's not needy, 
but he's overflowing and loving and generous and good. He pours out his love upon his people. He is a fountain of goodness, we sing. And if that's the kind of God he is, if that's the kind of world he's made, where he is this kind and generous, loving Father who gives, then seeking his reputation and his glory is a good thing. It's a good thing because it means we go to our Father and he gives what we need. He provides, he loves. And for the world to see how this, for people to see how this world works, then he needs to be at the heart of it. That's how he's made things. For them to see his beauty, his, his power, his glory, his kindness. And it's not that he has an ego at all. But it's simply that he is the loving father who loves to pour things out for his people. And if God alone has the right to be worshipped, if he is infinitely beautiful and glorious, then those other gods are not And if we worship other gods that do not provide what we need or we were never meant to worship or cherish or bow down to, then to do those things is a scandal and it makes us less the humans we were made to be, the world that was made with him at the heart of it. Which means God's glory is a really good thing because he is a loving father who pours out his goodness for his people. Which means we should pray in light of his glory and his name. Not because he's needy, but because he's made the world in such a way where he is at the heart of it. And I think the danger with our prayers very often, they are less less about God's glory, if we're honest, and more about our own glory. How often does our glory sit behind the prayers that we pray. We think, Lord, this thing is coming up and I'm a bit stressed about it and I don't want to look stupid. Um, Please make that all right, will you? Please. And that really comes down to being our glory rather than his. Or there's this thing coming up in my diary that I'm pretty anxious about and, Lord, could you sort that for me? Um, I pray these things in my name and for for my glory. No, but we do that. Or we verge on doing that perhaps. But it's striking, isn't it, that Daniel prayed in light of God's glory. That the world might see how incredible he is. That the nations might see how good he is and how kind he is. The psalmist, many of you will know, writes, Not to us, O Lord, not to, not to us, but to you be glory. And God answers in verse 20 through to 27. In fact, it's striking. Um, God answers straight away, but not because of the eloquence or authenticity or fervour of Daniel's prayer, in that he's twisted God's arm in such a way. No, verse 21, 22, do you see it? It's, it's as if God had almost just been waiting. In his sovereignty, for Daniel to pray. Not at the end of the prayer, it's at the start of the prayer. And this next bit is a slight um, translation and interpretive minefield. Um, So I'm going to give you a basic answer and then you can come and chat to me and I'll send you various commentaries and things that you can read to have a 
crack it and see what's going on. I think what's going on is this. Daniel has been thinking about the 70 years that need to come to an end for the Israelites to go back home. He gets the 70 years which we've seen from the um, book of Jeremiah, which is at the start of the chapter. And then through the vision, God says to Daniel, basically, Daniel, forget 70 years. There is something going on much bigger here. You need to get the whole picture. Think seven times 70 years, which is apocalyptic language for a long time, a big time. There is something far, far bigger coming than 70 years and you return back home again. There's something far greater than just a return to earthly Jerusalem. It it is bigger than that. God will put an end to sin through his anointed saviour. It's far more than Daniel praying for a return from exile. God is talking about an end of sin. He's asked for the return of God's people, but he's promised the arrival of God's son. He's asked for Jerusalem and he's promised Jesus. I think that's what's going on with God's anointed ruler who will rule. Okay, so Daniel prays in light of the Bible. He prays fervently with confession. He prays in light of God's glory and he is answered. What does this mean for us? As I say, I've taken a fair bit of time reflecting on this and chewing over it. And it's really, I'm not sure what I thought it meant it actually means. So let me tell you about how far I've got and where I'm up to. I think it would be really easy to look at Daniel 9 and to talk about the importance of confession. To talk about the importance of being honest about our sin. Not making excuses. Praying in light of God's glory and his name and his fame. I think those things are all there. I would agree with them. But I think I want to raise with you three reasons why we need to be careful with Daniel chapter 9. Where we sit this side of the cross as we think through how to apply it. Um, I want to say this. I think firstly, under the new covenant, we need to repent of our own sin. Um, that's not rocket science in one sense but I think from my perspective there's something new about the new covenant here that there's an individuality a responsibility that we each have towards our own sin so let me just give you a verse that you can um, listen in, write it down, look it up later Uh, Ezekiel 18 um, there are new things about the new covenant and I think this is one of them Um, Ezekiel 18 verse 20 the one who sins is the one who will die The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. What does that mean? That means when you reach the new covenant, there is something more, if you like, of an individuality regarding our faith. Now, there is a corporate nature. I don't think you lose the entirety of the sort of federal headship stuff, but there's an individuality of our faith here. So Daniel represents his people confessing his and their sin, mediating for them on their behalf, and God hears and answers, it seems. And so I want to say Daniel is a model for us, and he is not a model for us. He is a model for us, because his prayer is a great example of confession, it is thorough, it is honest, there aren't any excuses, there is no ducking blame, there is no pointing the finger somewhere else. 
It's not somebody else's fault. He is a model for us of honest confession. But he's not a model for us because he is praying for forgiveness on behalf of others. Does that make sense? I think we probably know this. We, we do pray corporately for Jesus to forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, Lord's Prayer. But that's a prayer that we can't um, rely on for others to pray for us. It's a prayer that we need to pray ourselves. And so in one sense, as we read this prayer in Daniel 9, we are Daniel, we are taking the prayer on our lips, we are honest about our own sin and our failings, we are real about our shortcomings and our wanderings. But in another sense, we are not Daniel, because Daniel is Jesus. What do I mean by that? Under the new covenant, we have a perfect mediator. So I'm saying, Daniel, is, this prayer is an example for us in one sense, but not in another sense. See, Daniel is a broken mediator praying for his people. You see, he prays for his own sin. He prays for their sin. He prays on behalf of the people of God for their forgiveness. And as Daniel does that, he looks ahead to one who would be the perfect mediator standing between his sinful people and a holy, pure God. And yet he doesn't just ask for forgiveness. He provides the forgiveness because he is punished in the place of his people. He turns aside God's wrath. Jesus is not like Daniel because he has not sinned and done wrong. Jesus, our great high priest, is not like the priestly Daniel here because he doesn't need atonement for his own sins. He has not been wicked and rebelled. He has not turned away from the commands and the laws. He has not ignored the prophets as Daniel had. He is not covered with shame as Daniel was. He has not disobeyed as Daniel did. But rather he takes all our sin and wrongdoing upon himself. And so he is shamed and he is exiled so that we won't be. He takes our shame. He takes our exile, our removal from God's presence upon himself. Do you see, Daniel repents for himself and his sin and his people. Jesus takes on to himself the sin of others, his people, and he's punished instead. We have a perfect mediator. We have one better than Daniel. I think even we have one who is hinted at, um, at the end, around about verse 25, the anointed ruler from the Lord. Which means... I think this side of the cross under the new covenant then confession is a little different this is a bit particularly I've um, wrestled with and been chewing over what do I mean by this I take it the kind of prayer that Daniel prays in Daniel chapter 9 is a prayer that we need to each pray once once when we return to him I'm not sure whether it's a daily prayer for each of us. What do I mean by that? Um, I think there are two types of repentance. There's the once and forever repentance. So think through, if you get your Colossians hat on in the mornings, there is a point where we receive Christ as Lord. There is a point when we come under his kingship, into his kingdom. There's a point when we become in him. We are adopted into his family. We are joined to him by faith forever we're no longer deaf but able to hear his voice we're no longer dead but alive we're no longer blind but able to see 
So there's a once and forever repentance when we are joined to him forever. But then there's the daily ongoing repentance as well. Um, Martin Luther, thinking about the Reformation, said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. So what kind of repentance do we need daily? Do we need a Daniel 9 type repentance daily? What does it mean to be in Christ, adopted, part of the family, alive, and yet still need to have repentance, to be honest about our failings? How do verses like this, Daniel 9, help people like us? Clearly they help us with the once and forever prayer when we return to the Lord and become joined to him by faith, dying and raising again. But is Daniel 9 a prayer for us each and every day? Because often in our circles it is. Daniel 9 is a prayer that people know well and it's used as a model of repentance for the Christian. And we kind of beat ourselves up. That regular, thorough, honest, brutal repentance and you can probably tell I'm a bit sceptical about that. I'm just not sure. Why do I think that? I think there's a tension and a sort of sense of emphasis we need to get to grips with. Um, not in my notes, but I had a conversation with a friend from a different church stream a while ago, which just got me thinking. He, he would be from a more charismatic background, perhaps, and he had come to a more kind of conservative church a bit more like ours in one sense Um, and he was speaking at this church and he said to me afterwards when they were doing the confession it was sort of based on this kind of stuff he said he couldn't do it because he doesn't see himself like that anymore why is that? well I think primarily the Bible describes Christians under the new covenant as we've seen we are alive we are in Christ we are redeemed we are adopted we are welcomed into his family And yet the kind of prayers that were being prayed that he struggled with were so we are sinful and awful and dead still, almost as if they were praying before they were Christians, before they were in the family. Whilst we're in these bodies, it's still quite, clearly it's wise and mature to be open about our sin, to wrestle with it, to put to death the sinful nature, to put off the old, all the kinds of stuff from Colossians in the mornings. But is our focus on us as, if you like, Sinners still, or those alive in Christ and saints still. Do we confess our sins? Of course we confess our sins. We confess our sins daily to the Lord. But how do we confess them? Do we confess them in a Daniel 9 type way? Or do we confess them as sad children who have let our father down because we've sinned against him? We've lived in a way that does not reflect on us being a part of his family what does it mean as new covenant believers to confess you see we can have joy we are in Christ now we're not finished yet but we are in Christ he is our perfect mediator he has taken the old away the new has come and we still muck up and we come before him in confession And we say sorry day by day by day. But as children who are loved and accepted and alive 
and joined to him by faith. I think too often our emphasis can be on the old rather than recognising that we are new. 